trust you had a great Thanksgiving holiday with your family and all the tryptophan is now <sighs> filtered through your system. If you're new with us this week, we are in the midst of a study through the New Testament book of Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, and we find ourselves in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey and the work of God within a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city known to be a haven for the occult. It was a collecting point for immorality, a model of corruption. I mean, the city of Ephesus even though it was the third largest city in all the Roman Empire, it was one of the darkest aspects of their time. Our own culture of kooky California has nothing on Ephesus. And yet, even within that dark culture, over the last couple of weeks, we've witnessed God doing some amazing, amazing work. If you have your Bibles, join me in the book of Acts Fifth book of the New Testament, Acts chapter 19. Now look at what the Bible, how the Bible is describing what God was doing in that city after just two years, two years of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Look at Acts chapter 19, verse 10. Look at this. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. After two years, God did such a work in Paul's ministry. It wasn't just Ephesus transformed, but all of Asia. Again, here's the map that we're following on Paul's missionary journey. Look at that red area right in the middle of the map. That entire region was impacted and transformed by the ministry that Paul was doing in one city known for its darkness, known for its corruption, known for its spiritual demonic activity. God did such a work there that entire region was impacted. See, so go and look and see what God, other things God was doing. Look at verse 11. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles. Again, last time we talked about that term extraordinary. This is unique. This isn't something you're supposed to expect. My encouragement to you, don't spend $100 to that guy on the TV at 1.30 in the morning. All right, God, if he wants to do a work in you, he can do it for free. But in this time, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs, Aprons were being carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. I mean, God was doing such a work that people from all over Asia were coming just to take Paul's sweatbands. And God was using that. See, within Ephesus, it was, they were so enraptured with the occult that God did work to elevate Paul above them all. So the voice of Paul, the message of Paul would rise above the kookiness of that culture. We kept going. Look what else happened, verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. And look, it keeps going. Verse 14. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, subdued all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to everyone. God did such a work. Look at verse 17. God did such a work. Both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Unbelievers are transformed in the midst of this. But it doesn't just focus on unbelievers. Look at this, verse 18. Many also who believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. People who claimed Christ but still had sin, still had corruption, still had darkness in their lives. They were coming and confessing that and bringing that to the Lord. And look how it ended. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Man, everything was going great. Paul went into this dark, kooky culture of Ephesus. And within two years, not only transformed Ephesus, transformed ministry in that entire region of Asia. In two years. That's where we're going to pick up the text today. Look at verse 21. Now after these things are finished, now after Paul looking at ministry, feeling like, hey, I think I'm done. Everything's going so well. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Things were going so well in Ephesus, Paul's like, you know what? I think my work's done. The power of God, the gospel has transformed Ephesus and spread into all of Asia. I think it's time for me to move on. And I don't know about you, but when things go splendidly in my life, I start to panic. When everything seems to be going well, I seem to get worried. You know why? Because it always seems in life when everything's going well, all hell's about to break loose. Has that happened in anyone else's life or just mine? Just when you think family, just when I think all of my boys are doing well, some drama hits. Just when Gretchen and I are clicking on all cylinders, I do something stupid. Just when I have a hope that maybe something's going to change in California, nothing. If that's ever happened to you, I want you to know you're in good company. Because that's what happened to Paul. Look at verse 23. Just when you think everything's going great, God's doing this amazing work in Ephesus. It's spread throughout Asia. Paul's kind of looking around thinking, all right, I think my work's done here and I'm about about to move on. Look at verse 23. About that same time. About that same time where Paul's thinking, oh, I think everything's going splendidly. Everything's going great. The word of the Lord is spreading mightily and it's prevailing about that time. There occurred no small disturbance concerning concerning the way. That phrase, no small disturbance, describes a large commotion, a great disturbance, a turbulent disorder. This wasn't some small, quick blip of disunity. This was a huge issue that consumed the entire city. Go on a little bit. Let's go down a little bit more and let's see How else it's described? Look at verse 29, Acts 19, verse 29. Luke describes it even more. 
The entire city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs were there who were friends of his, sent to him, repeatedly urged him, don't go in there. Verse 32, so then some were shouting one thing, some another, for assembly was in confusion. The majority did not know for what reason they'd even come together. I mean, all of a sudden, everything was going great in Ephesus. God was doing a work in Ephesus that was spreading through the entire region. And then as if overnight, the entire city was consumed. It says it's filled with confusion. That term filled to the brim. I mean, we're packing it in, overflowing. It is overflowing with confusion. That term confusion is actually quite clear. It's talking about people who are ordinarily good, normal-minded, clear-minded people who just get sucked into all this drama. I mean, these weren't just the normal rabble-rousers. I mean, something happened that were ordinary good people who typically went through their lives were just sucked into this. And look how bad it got. Verse 32. Some were shouting one thing, some another. People were just screaming things. For the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not even know for what reason they'd come together. Uh, Benjamin Franklin had this great quote I found this week. He said, he was describing a mob, and he said, a mob of people have many heads, but no brains. And I thought, man, how fitting is that? Like, here's Ephesus. The Bible's describing God doing this amazing work in the city of Ephesus, this dark city that God transformed and used as a bright light throughout the entire region, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the city goes bananas. And everyone starts gathering in the spot. Everyone's yelling something different. A lot of people are there, and they're mad. They're not even sure what they're mad at, but they're mad nonetheless. I'm reading these, this text and this question comes to mind. Man, what happened? What caused the city in that region to go bananas? And really, outside of history, why should we care? Those are three questions I want to spend the rest of my time showing you in the text. What happened? What caused that city to go bananas? Why should we care? In this message, I think there's not only answers to those questions, but great reminders for you and I. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Verse 23, chapter 19, verse 23. Look at how the story goes. About that time, again, at that time of peace, everything was going great in Ephesus. There occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Why? Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You've seen here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. 
Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also this temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world will worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis and the Ephesians. So here's what happens. It all begins with this one guy, Demetrius. He's a silversmith. He's a craftsman. He makes little models of the temple. If you remember in the city of Asia or city of Ephesus, it's the third largest, most populous city in all of the Roman Empire, but their one claim to fame was the temple to Artemis. It was listed as one of the seven wonders of the world. And people would come from all over to worship, to look at. And the temple was so impressive that people used it as a bank and they used it as a vault where their precious documents and resources were were locked into a room of that temple because after all, who would ever think about robbing and defiling the temple of Artemis? But Demetrius... His concern is no one's buying idols. No one's buying our trinkets. No one's buying our stuff. Hey, the local silversmith union is going to go under. We need to change something. But it's not just the local silversmiths he's concerned about. Look at verse 27. He says, not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, that term disrepute, Term means that their trade of idol making is quickly becoming discredited and criticized. Quite frankly, Demetrius is worried about being canceled by culture. Hey, something has changed so much in culture. Not only are people not buying our little fake idols, but they're even discrediting us, speaking against us. They're looking at canceling us. Not just that, look what on. He goes, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. Something happened where people don't even know if Artemis matters anymore. Artemis, if you aren't familiar, Artemis was a goddess of astrology and fertility. In his day, many men thought that Artemis would would have some sort of power over their wives' libido. So men would flock from all over Asia to worship and give a generous offering to Artemis and hope to spice up their marriage. Demetrius is saying, hey, not only is the silversmith business gonna go under, our whole economy, if people don't believe in Artemis anymore, our entire economy is gonna be trashed. All of Ephesus is gonna be ruined. Everyone is gonna struggle. Gas prices are going to go up. Property values are going to go up. Savings account percentages are going to go down. The debt will rise. It's going to be a disaster. Quite frankly, here's what this is all about. Money. Something changed in Ephesus so much, and the whole city came in an uproar over money. That reminded me of something the Apostle Paul taught. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 says this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap 
and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who want to get rich, those who are preoccupied with money, those who hunger and place their hope in finances. No, let's go back to verse uh, verse 9. Sorry, Phyllis. And a trap and many foolish, harmful desires. And look, that term plunge, that term plunge people means to shipwreck something on purpose, to drown oneself intentionally. Plunge people. I mean, it's just headlong, full speed into this brick wall. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. Those Greek words ruin and destruction mean basically the same thing. Two different words meaning the same thing. And it does, Luke does that for a point. Or Paul does that for a point. To make sure that we understand how, uh, how irreversible, how deep this destruction, man, this pursuit and love of money, this whole aspect of economy driving our very purpose and lives. And it can lead people to just crazy desires. It plunges people, it shipwrecks people into ruin and destruction, destruction something that is irreversible. Man, it just erodes at your soul. Now let's look on to verse 10. Because here's the alarming thing. See, he's not just talking about local silversmiths anymore. He's not just talking about people outside of church. Look what he says. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. As if it's not just the pursuit of money by them that causes trouble, but it's the pursuit of money by us. The love of money, again, that term, the love, it's talking about this hunger, this longing, this rooting of life, this foundational purpose of your existence. Some by longing for wealth have wandered away from the faith, have gotten lost, that term pierced, the term pierce means to impale oneself. To impale oneself completely and on purpose. Impale oneself with many griefs. First reminder for us as we look at what happened to Ephesus. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Man, this aspect of our Christian lives where we just put money and economy and retirement at the root of everything that we have and focus on in life, if that's where our hope is, man, that is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's the chief element that he wrote at Ephesus. And Paul warned Christians. In fact, that passage in Timothy, he wrote it under the aspects of qualifying leadership, as if even Christian leaders can fall and shipwreck their faith and ministry over money. So I was thinking this week, how do we know? How do we know if we're in danger of shipwrecking our faith, of plunging ourselves into destruction? How do we know if money has too deep a root in our lives? Because I got to tell you, you can be rich and not be a lover of money, and you can be poor and be a lover of money. In fact, in my experience, because I didn't grow up with a lot of money, in my experience, people who hunger for money aren't those who have it. 
is those who feel they need it. So this isn't something necessarily Paul's talking about all the rich. I think more importantly, Paul's talking to all who are poor. And the pursuit of economy and wealth, man, it is, it's the foundation of all sorts of evil. So how do we know? I was reading an old Christian pastor recently. I want to share four questions with you. Maybe they'll help you determine, are you in danger? Are you struggling with your relationship with money? Number one, question number one, how to determine if maybe you're struggling with being a lover of money. Question number one, what motivates me in life? What motivates you? You're going into your career, you're going into college, solely based on the income potential, the earning potential of a job? Why do you go to work? To be a reflection of God's glory in the midst of a workplace? Or is your whole purpose of going to work and doing your job is to get a raise, to make more money, to get a bigger house and a nicer car? Question. To help us as Christians maybe process through where do we have a healthy relationship with money? Number one, what motivates me in life? Question number two, are you ever content? Do you ever have enough? My wife and I have been working on our backyard and I was reminiscing with her. I remember when we bought that house 20 years ago. I mean, we didn't come from a lot of money, so my dream that I told God, I just want a house with an attached garage. (laughs) See, in my neighborhood, the rich people, they had homes where you could park your car in the garage and walk in the house. (gasps) (laughs) And God allowed me to buy a house with an attached garage. I remember, I'm never going to ask God for anything again. Like, he has blessed me beyond my imagination. Now I have four kids, 1,300 square feet, two dogs, two cats, two fish tanks, and friends who just come by and eat all my food. And I find myself stewing in my house. Oh, this little house. Remember when we bought the Suburban I'll never ask God for another thing. I have a car that can hold all of my children and Christmas presents at the same time. Now I drive this 11-year-old Suburban. Oh, hate this car. <laughs> you ever have enough? You ever content? Maybe one question to ask. You might know you might learn you have an issue with money. If you find that you're never content, you're always needing more. Here's another question. Are you generous with others? You know, you might be a lover of money. You might have a a troubled relationship with money if sharing with others is a challenge. When giving to church is a struggle When sharing with your neighbors is a burden. 
If you're wondering, hey, Brian, I don't know, how, do I can, how can I tell if I'm becoming a lover of money? Number three, do you have a difficult time being generous with others? Number four, are you willing to lie, cheat, and steal in order to obtain more? No, Brian, I'm not a lover of money. I don't care. Everything's God's. Do you cheat on your taxes? If you're a businessman, a manager, are you above reproach in all of your financial dealings? Four questions. See, Paul seems to think this isn't just a concern for a culture like Ephesus, but it's a concern for Christians like us as well. What happened in Ephesus? Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I think what happened in Ephesus can happen in our church, in our families, in our own lives, if we don't focus on our heart and a righteous relationship with money. First thing that happened to Ephesus, first reminder for us, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That led me to another question though in the text. So we know what this is all about with this big uproar with the city going bananas. We know that it's all about money, but who's to blame? Who did culture look at? Who did culture blame for all this going on? And that answer is gonna be in verse 26. Again, these are the words of Demetrius, the silversmith. Verse 26, he says, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. Hey, this is not just our city. It's spread all over. What has? This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Hey, your little trinkets don't hold any power. That was blowing people's minds. Gods made with hands have no power. It's like, you want to know who's at fault for all this? Paul. He's spreading this gospel nonsense. And look how he describes it. He persuaded people. Remember that term persuade. That just Let's give our, get our perspective right. Paul didn't just go into Ephesus, preach the gospel, and people fall on their knees. He didn't go to Angel Stadium, wave a yellow sign, and expect culture to change. He didn't go door to door and start passing out tracts and asking fake questions, and culture was changed. Paul persuaded. He spent time. He had conversations. Again, that term is Paul put so much effort, he's almost pulling people through the pearly gates. He overwhelmed them with reason. Man, Paul was just nonstop. He was a bulldog when it came to the gospel. He would not quit. Demetrius, this Paul, man, he is almost single-handedly pulling people into the pearly gates. And look, he says a considerable number of people. That's Bible talk for virtually everybody. Considerable number of people. There's so many people that it influenced the government. It influenced their economy. I want to make sure you look at that. Highlight that, underline that. It was the gospel. 
because of Paul's message of the gospel, not only the city of Ephesus, that entire region was transformed where it threatened the even economy of that region. Nothing about politics. There's nothing about picketing and shutting down the local tarot card shop. This is just Paul sharing the gospel. This is Paul talking about the message of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and freedom in Christ. It transformed this whole region. Paul's persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that God made with hands are no gods at all. Hey, this is a gospel. This is the words of Demetrius. The message of Paul is single-handedly transforming our culture. I'm going to show you some things that Paul wrote to those Christians, to that church in Ephesus. So put your thumbs in Acts for a minute. Flip over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Please. Ephesians, chapter 2. See, I get all demanding. Ephesians, chapter 2. Look at how Paul is talking about these Christians Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to see the change, the transformation that happened. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, verse 4, but God. Man, if you're ever bored one of these days, look up that phrase, but God, in Scripture. You'll be amazed at how many times Scripture teaches of this one path heading towards destruction, and then these two words, but God, and everything changes. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Go over to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 22, Ephesians 4, 22, look what else he says. In reference to your former manner of life, the old way, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, holiness, and truth. Paul is describing, man, something changed in these people. Something changed in how they lived. Something changed in how they walked. Something changed in how they thought. That's what happened in Ephesus. And it's not just Ephesus. It was in Corinth. Look at what Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. After he lists a bunch of sins, he said this, such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the, in the same of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's supposed to be named, name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And Paul uses two theological terms here to describe what happened. 
to the people of Ephesus, to the people of Corinth, and something that should be happening in us. Justification and sanctification. I put their definitions up here. Justification is the act of God that declares a sinner righteous by faith on the merit of Christ's sacrifice. Justification is what God does for you at the point of salvation. You bring all your sins to God and Jesus pays the price. That's justified. You declared righteous. You are freed from your guilt. You are declared justified. Your sins have been washed clean. Your heart is pure. And that's typically what we view as salvation. That's what we preach as the gospel. That Jesus will pay your sins. And you can go to heaven. But Paul seems to expect something else. See, salvation is justification and a term called sanctification. Look at this. Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our daily lives. Justification is something that God does for you. Sanctification comes after. Sanctification is what God does in you. And it's a progressive work between God and man. God does his work, but you need to do your work. You need to make choices to rid your life of sin. You need to make choices to get yourself out of this cycle of anger that's destroying your marriage. You need to make those choices. And God will empower you. When the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about justification and sanctification. You ever see those Christian people? You're like, oh my gosh, I've never seen a more righteous person in all my life. And we just think there's just some superstar Christian that God did something powerful in their life. And that's not it at all. God doesn't love them more than you. They've just applied sanctification more in their life than you. Now my grandfather, the most righteous man I've ever met, he didn't get there by osmosis. He didn't get there just by being old. I've known plenty of old men who aren't righteous like my grandfather. You want to know what happened in Ephesus? The gospel was preached. But the gospel did more than save souls. It changed lives. That's our second truth. You want to know what happened at Ephesus? The gospel doesn't just save souls, it changes lives. People's lives changed. Man, you want passion back in your marriage? Try being loving to your wife. That's in Ephesians 5. You don't need Artemis at all. You want children who are obedient? Fathers, mothers, Man, stop being on them all the time. Stop trying to just irritate them. Stop trying to put them under your thumb. Ephesians 6. Man, Paul spent so much effort because he believes the gospel does more than save souls. It changes lives. The gospel transformed that culture, not just because of what it did in the souls of those people, but in their lives that followed. 
So my question for you, how's your sanctification going? See, I think we're a culture of justified Christians. I think we're a culture that if you raise your hand and walk down the aisle at Angel Stadium, you're in, you're done. You sing about heaven on Sunday and you can live like hell Monday through Saturday and no one cares. That's not how you change culture. The gospel does more than save souls. It changes lives. And man, I truly believe if Christians would allow the gospel to purify their hearts, transform their marriages, renew their children, unify their churches, there would be a cataclysmic impact in culture. That's what happened in Ephesus. And that's what needs to happen in the Chino Valley. Third thing briefly I want to share with you. One last truth. One last thing that happened. Look at verse 35. You have this whole crowd, everyone's screaming, who knows what. No one really knows why they're there. Look at verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? That's a story in and of itself. Verse 36. So since there are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Verse 40, 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers or, or uh, robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. First thing I notice in this text in this passage, this area, they didn't have anything bad to say about Paul. You notice that? Like the city clerk, the governor of that area is addressing all the people saying, Paul didn't do anything wrong. What are you mad at? He didn't do anything wrong. That led me to a reminder of what the apostle Peter encouraged his people, early Christians early on, said this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them. Glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your behavior excellent. Elsewhere, Peter says, if you're gonna be persecuted, let it be for righteousness. Man, if culture hates you, let it be because of the gospel. Not because of some aspect of culture. But here's where we get to the final truth. Verse 38. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one of one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. And the clerk basically dispenses the people and says, go home. Third reminder I want to share with you because it was in particularly helpful to me. The government isn't always bad. Now, I don't know about you, I have such a cynical attitude towards government. I have such a distrust of government. And I just tend to write them all off. It's a great reminder for me, maybe for you. 
Government isn't always bad. Look at what Paul said in Romans 13 about it. He said, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. He continues, says, for it is a servant of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing or is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Most believe Paul wrote this passage shortly after his visit in Ephesus. Reminder, the government isn't always bad. I don't know about you, it seems like over the last couple of years, there's been a ton of things said by a ton of different peoples about how Christians should be relating to government. It's getting so bad to where I think we're all kind of angry about something, we're not sure what, and we're confused on how to relate with the government. So I want to remind you, our church, our church went through and search scripture on how we should be relating with our government. We came up with five principles that are rooted in scripture and we wrote all those out for you. What the Bible says, here's how you do it. If you haven't seen those or you've forgotten those, they're available at the information center. Five principles for politics, five principles on how the Bible teaches us as Christians to interact with the government in our day. I know there's a lot of things said by a lot of different people. Just make sure that you know what the Bible says about how to do it. I love this whole chapter of Acts. We've been essentially spent three weeks in it because I think it's a reminder for us of what God can do in a dark and kooky culture. Man, if he transformed Ephesus and the entire region around it back then, why not today? Why not the Chino Valley? Why not your home? Why not our church? Why not our community? But make no mistake, the purpose, the power, the focus of that transformation, it was the gospel in Ephesus it needs to still be the gospel today. Let's pray. Uh, again, Father, we are grateful for your word that gives us hope for these days. God, I know many of us are here in church because we believe in your power to save us. We've experienced your glory, we've experienced salvation, we've experienced your power in our lives. God, you've renewed our marriages, restored our families. You have revived our faith in you. God, we have confidence in your power to save us, but God, we confess that many of us have a lack of confidence in your ability to save others. So God, we do ask that you would do a work in our community as you did in Ephesus. God, embolden us in preaching your gospel, your power of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, 
renewal and freedom that comes from it. God, embolden us to preach your gospel. God, I pray that you would transform people's lives in Ephesus. As you did then, do it here with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.